This is John Drabinsky, and you're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's conversation is with Perry Zern, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at American University in Washington, D.C. In addition to dozens of articles on key figures and issues in the European philosophical tradition, Perry has edited three volumes, with Andrew Diltz, Active Intolerance, Michel Foucault, The Prison's Information Group, and The Future of Abolition, published by Palgrave in 2016, with Arjun Shankar, Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge, with the University of Minnesota Press in 2020, and Intolerable, Writings from Michel Foucault and The Prison's Information Group, 1970-1980, which included translation work and was published by University of Minnesota Press in 2021. He has co-authored Curious Minds, The Power of Connection with Danny S. Bassett, published by MIT Press in 2022, and single-authored Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2021, which is the occasion for our conversation today. In this discussion, we explore the intellectual roots of the project, the relation between curiosity and self-making, and politics and the place of curiosity in thinking about the future of philosophy and its political meaning. Hello, Perry. It's great to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Uh, this is, I will just say, this is the first time we've had a podcast live and in person. So, um, you know, I appreciate you uh, making the trip out to University of Maryland to talk about your book. Sure. It's a new moment. I, I really love this book. I've been looking forward to talking with you about it, um, as well as some of your related projects. Um, it just really struck me as an incredibly unique project. And for me, um, I mean, I liked reading it. It, it engaged familiar figures for me and uh, Nietzsche and Foucault and Derrida in completely new ways, uh, which I really loved. But also just by introducing this idea of curiosity, this notion of curiosity and putting it at the center of political and philosophical thinking. It's just, I feel like I learned so much from the book. And um, I just, I, I like to say that when I learn from books, because I think learning from books is something, the way we usually don't talk about our reading. But I just learned so much from this. So I just want to say that at the outset. Oh, thanks. So let me start with the, just a broad question, asking you to narrate us a bit into the project. Um, significant, uh, really original bit of work. But like all books, takes over your life. So uh, we obviously have something that motivates us. So I'm just curious, you know, just practically as well as uh, philosophically, politically, you know, what motivated you with this project? How you, you know, came to the materials and these insights and what drew you to writing this and writing it now? Yeah, I think um, I can tell this story in any number of ways, but I think at some fundamental level, curiosity was really important for my own um, intellectual liberation and personal liberation um, as a young person. So I grew up in a really restrictive um, environment, 
intellectually again and personally and uh it was really i had to ask questions that i wasn't supposed to ask in order to find spaces to breathe mm. so i think i think I, i felt connected to curiosity and to the to the necessity of curiosity for, in my own life for a while and then um you know i fell in love with philosophy and ended up in my phd and i realized i started reading you know i was doing historical work or work in the history of philosophy during grad school and i realized that there's um there's just such a long long history of um denigrating curiosity in philosophy <laughs> so <laughs> in the ancient period medieval period somewhat in the modern period not entirely but just a really long history and so from augustine to heidegger really there's, there's some folks who just say you know this is a this is a insufficient way to go about thinking um, real thought and and i thought well that that doesn't vibe with my life you know it doesn't really make sense in the context of what it has meant for me so i think it was really that uh dissonance that ended up um really getting me into the text a little bit more to say what else what else is here and what else is there to be done around around the question of curiosity just to have noticed that as as a sort of quiet discourse in the history of philosophy is itself really interesting to me I mean, I remember because I hadn't noticed that, you know, I, I, you know, I guess that's why books are written. You know, here's the thing I noticed that other people didn't. But um, it's just such a, an important thing, right? Curiosity, right? Whether it's denigrated or elevated or anywhere in between. And for me, it's interesting just autobiographically for um, a number of years, I've been building into my syllabi. Uh, what I called curiosity projects. Mm. So, for example, I would teach a class. I used to teach a class at Amherst College on uh, the Black Panther movement mm. and sort of intellectual sort of work that the the party members did. And the library had a, a full run of the Black Panther newspaper, and so I used to just tell students. I want you to spend time with these newspapers and then write blog posts or short little pieces uh, of what you found interesting. And I called it a curiosity project. And I mm -hmm. said, I just want you to flip through and it could be like an ad for a hair product or it could be an ad for guns or it could be an essay about Hegel or anything in between because it's all in this newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I called it a curiosity project. And I said, I just want you to find what draws your interest. And that so disoriented students right and at first disoriented me i just said you know this is what i want you to do but then i wasn't quite sure what to expect and and actually you know how to explain it i found myself sort of befuddled and i always called it a curiosity project and the students would laser in. what do you mean by curiosity i was like well just write what interests you right i wasn't sure where to go and then i saw the title of your book when it was forthcoming and you know, I know you, I already knew about you. And so I, I pre-ordered the book, but I was also like, I should have an answer when they asked, like, what is curiosity? Mm. Um, but it is even just in terms of pedagogy, right? And in terms of, of, of reading and thinking and writing, it's such a contrary model to so much of what philosophy or theoretical orientations do. Yeah, I think it's it's so interesting what curiosity and philosophy's relationship. I think there's uh, been a recent turn among analytic philosophers to really think about curiosity. Hmm. Um, but so many of them say that nothing really happened historically. Um, 
uh, you know, with respect to curiosity in the history of Western thought. And that's just really, really, really not true. And so I think given my, um, my interests already in the history and my, um, my love of different languages, it was, it was easy and it felt necessary to go back and to say, well, what is this history and what are the lessons to be sort of drawn out there and how might it deepen, right? I mean, what what college these days doesn't say it's about curiosity and trying to facilitate student mm, curiosity mm-hmm. in some way? But how could we deepen what that what that means? What that curiosity projects would mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, just as a side note, too, uh, one of the universities uh, where my uh, oldest applied had an essay required for their honors program about curiosity. And I, I totally give credit. It must, must have been your book. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I think I, Andrew Diltz wrote the question, so I don't know if you know Andrew. but I um, do, I do, yes. So I, I gave you credit through Andrew. Right? But that's, that's, probably, that's probably one of the directions that he, yeah, he brought it from. But honestly, I mean, this is interesting to think about curiosity's role in honors programs and, is it, and the ways in which we, I think, uh, even um, uh, kind of in grade school at, and, and then again in college, how, how pedagogies and curriculum are changed to allow for greater curiosity for gifted students of some kind. Yeah. Um, and whereas they're sort of reduced or constricted uh, for more standard students to say, you know, we don't really need you to try to explore too much. We just need you to learn the skills mm-hmm. or something. And the, the way in which curiosity has been typed as a kind of an elite capacity um, deserves its own critical inquiry. So let me ask you about the way you, you frame so much of the, the analysis of curiosity in the book, because I think, you know, my when I saw the, the, the title, and, you know, I think a lot of times when we just see a title, we start improvising what the book must be about, right? Um, it tends, I, I think our, our habit is to really go towards, you know, sort of cultural production about like, a, you know, a, a painter in a Western tradition, you know, gets interested in painting from a non-Western tradition and that curiosity. So, or musically, you know, this sort of curiosity as sort of aesthetic and cultural production. But so much of the book is about politics and power. And I wanted to know, like, why why did you move in that direction? I mean, I love that about the book, but it was also one of those things that for me was really unexpected. And I wanted to ask, like, why that direction? Yeah. So when you dig into, again, the history of um, Western intellectual thought um, and or contemporary psychology and the ways in which curiosity is described in each of these uh, traditions or lineages, what you typically get is a is a characterization of curiosity as this individual drive to know, this drive to explore, this motivation or an interest in novel uh, and new experiences. But it tends to be really individual and really internal, as if my curiosity light bulb is, you know, inside me or inside you. And um, that doesn't that didn't resonate for me, given you know my background and the ways in which, for example, the church in which I grew up was willing to ask specific questions and not willing to support or, or, or ask other questions. Mm-hmm. So curiosity was already social there, um, at least social, and it turns out also uh, political. So I wanted to I wanted to really think about curiosity in a different way and to try to uh, re-characterize it as a social practice. So what does it mean for curiosity to become something like a, a social practice? Then we can ask questions, not what am I curious about, but... What, is curiosity, what do questions do in the world? Um, mm-hmm. How do they happen 
between us. And that's where you start noticing really how power structures, I think, constrain who asks questions and how they ask questions and what they ask questions about and whose questions get kind of canonized and which ones don't and why. Um, but then you can also ask, well, in marginalized communities where all the resistance is happening, how are they saying, no, these are some new questions we need to be asking. And they're saying, no, what, you know, the ways in which questions have been constrained and inquiry has been constrained need to change. We need to attend to new things. We need to attune ourselves to new things. So I think it just opened up for me this whole other world for thinking curiosity um, collectively and socially and politically. And I will say that, you know, um, before I read the book, um, I, I if I hadn't read the book, I don't know that I would have seen how much curiosity is actually factoring into this real right-wing backlash around schooling and books. Because mm -hmm. I think part of it is those conversations, they're not conversations, they're just declarations and decrees, but... Um, you know, it's about the content is bad and harmful for whatever sort of right-wing uh, reasons. But it's also, I think, this concern about, like, these books might spark curiosity about racial justice, about about gender identity, about sexuality, about international what. I mean, it could be anything, right? The right-wing is voracious that way. But I have to say, like, for me, you know, I know the book is, is, is you know, a rich intellectual history and reckoning, but it also, I just think it, like, puts a spotlight on the the deep elements of right-wing anxiety in, in our moment. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it really helps to put some of these things in context, too. So one of the um, one of the things I do in my curiosity class is I go back to the Freedom Schools curriculum. And because part of what they're doing in 1964, for example, is to say, these are the questions and the subjects we that need to be in school and aren't in school. And that's a that's a you know that's a pol that's a polarity for the the our our moment today in which people are now trying to take that stuff back out of school. But but this was a moment where we we're saying, look, this is what needs to go back in school, but there's no place for it. So let's have freedom schools. Let's have area you know spaces outside of traditional education to precisely ask these questions about what segregation is, what it feels like, what the history is, and 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 how we can actually think through these problems that we don't have spaces to think through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me uh, let me ask you to talk a little bit about the intellectual roots of of the project. You have the the uh, subsection episodes from political theory, which is a phrase I really love. Episodes, and I was definitely, um, you know, I love tables of content and titles, and I really like that episodes, right? So, if you want to talk a little bit about that phrase, uh, it'd be interesting. But you, you know, you have those chapters on Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida that really ground uh, the project, and it's like your sort of intellectual roots and honesty in the project. You know, this is this is how I'm framing it. So I'm interested to hear you talk about, you know, why why these three thinkers and what you think they do that's especially um, instructive in terms of allowing us to see things about curiosity and politics and power. Um, you know whether as individuals or even as a group, because they have a kind of coherence between them and incoherence between them. And incoherence can be super productive, uh, but also, you know, you draw out so many coherences. So really, this is a question about those chapters and how you would characterize that intellectual root of the project, but also maybe uh, that episodes from uh, political theory. Yeah, I wanted to think about why episodes. I, I didn't want to say... Um 
accounts, you know, political theory accounts of curiosity here, because I really think that there are accounts being offered in the second half of the of the book as well that are not stemming from canonical thinkers. And so I wanted to I wanted to characterize this as moments, um, passing moments that may have relevance and may not have relevance, um, and that and that, that they don't get to have some kind of um, greater authority to speak about what curiosity is than the latter half of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I did I did feel the need to have these more canonical voices, in part because this is the ten year book, right? This was the first book. Sure. This is a um, this is going to get sent out, and folks who know my work and know my training are going to say, "Are you doing <laughs> Are you doing the stuff uh, that counts?" I suppose. Sure. Um, and so I felt like I needed I needed that to be um, I needed that to be there. And I honestly I think. You know, we're at a moment in philosophy where I think we could say that we don't ever have to read these guys again. We could certainly say that, but that doesn't mean that there isn't um, something there still to be learned. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoy doing that kind of historical work um, to find to find in older voices something something worth worth maintaining or worth asking again. So hence Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida. And I do try to think about. Um, I think I try to think about Nietzsche's sickness and disability, and I try to draw some of that, the relationship of that out to his account of curiosity. I try mm-hmm. to think about Foucault's queerness. I try to think about uh, Derrida's brownness, because I think one of the um, one of the real uh, dangers I think of whiteness is also to whiten what is what is um, what is already more interesting and um, capacious about work and histories within the Western. Um, mm-hmm. kind of canon, which I know you do some of already with uh, this larger concept of um, Atlantic theory. But so these folks, what do they offer? They really offer, they offer nascent political accounts of curiosity. So they don't say this is what we think about curiosity, but they do use the word enough times and in enough context that you can draw some um, some mm-hmm. account mm-hmm. from their work. And what, what you see in Nietzsche, for example, is you see a curiosity he describes as for life or against life, and that there's there's a constant agonism or struggle between forms of curiosity that produce change in creativity and those that um, get stuck and sedimented. And similarly in Foucault, you get this kind of institutional curiosity, which can be disciplinary or biopolitical or juridical in a variety of ways and just kind of governs how standard knowledge gets created, passed on, and maintained. Mm -hmm. But then there's a revolutionary or resistant kind of curiosity that really tries to work diagonally across all of that that fabric and to say, you know, there are other ways of knowing and other ways of being um, and other ways of asking. And then Derrida similarly has this steep critique of, of what he calls autopsic curiosity and therapeutic curiosity, which for him are curiosities that dissect and confine meaning. And you know, of course, that Derrida is not going to be pro-dissection or confinement of meaning, right? <laughs> yeah. But he's going he's gonna to want to say uh, there's another kind of curiosity, perhaps a third kind, that destabilizes dissections and confinements and, and kind of follows and responds to the instability in words and concepts and histories and lineages. Um, so what they offer for me is an attention to not just curiosity writ large, but curiosity formations. So I really want to think about how curiosity gets formed into these formations. Um, and we can start attending to 
again, how in specific contexts, who asks questions, how they ask questions, what they ask questions about, get settled in particular configurations or shapes. Mm. And those can maintain status quo or they can second guess them and change them uh, and everything in between. So I think that's what they really offer me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really loved about the book, and I want to ask you about sort of the second half of the book, which moves from figures to sort of, um, you know, political sites. Um, but one of the things I really loved about the book, you know, you said is, I mean, it, I, I was laughing to myself, it, the tenure book is a real thing, right? Yeah, it's like, right. it's like, how do you write that book that makes a tenure committee and, um, you know, not that you're on the move, but potential hiring committees uh, look at and say, oh, I recognize this as a thing, right? right. But the I think the temptation in those moments, I know it certainly was for me, is to do like Derrida's theory of create of, of uh, curiosity, mm-hmm. right, or Nietzsche's, mm-hmm. right. So one of the, I found it really interesting that, you know, to hear you say that about well, tenure books, sort of canonical figures. There's also the part of me that's like, how did Derrida and Foucault become canonical? But they are in certain circles and in, <laughs> in increasingly wide circles. Um, Having gone to graduate school in the early 90s when these were like devil figures <laughs> for so much of academia, uh, times change. Um, but the, the way the way you infuse the, that, the, you know, the trio and put it under episodes. I really love that, that word episodes. I might borrow it at some point because it's just I, I like the way you talked about it. It just has a different uh, register, but the way you work creatively with them, as you say, it's not like you get Derrida's essay on curiosity and you're going to just do an exposition of it, right? But instead, work creatively to put this together. That's that part, and it's hard to do in books that have an historical sensibility or debt to thinkers that you want to sort of witness in your writing to actually get to see, like in this case, like we see Perry in this, mm. right? Although it's a very you know scholarly book, that scholarly work is being done so clearly by you. And mm. I, I just really like that. I just want to note that because um, I struggle, for, and a lot of us struggle for that with that as writers. Like where do we enter into the, the historically-minded work or textually-minded work that, that especially the first half of the book has, but really get a sense of like you right there. That's, yeah, that's awesome. And I think it was, uh, that's sort of necessitated by the rest of the book because I knew where I had to go and I knew where I had to stretch these folks. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as if I could get um, super um, um, close and honorific about the the sections on Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida because I needed to be able to lift them up and use them later in in very, very different contexts. So with that second phase of the book, if you want to call it that, it's under the the title of that section, Archives of Political Experience. Again, I really like Archives of Political Experience. I I would love to hear about your thoughts on that phrase. Again, that's like, I looked at the table of contents. I was like, I love this section already because that's a great phrase, (laughs) right? That then transitions you into thinking about curiosity in terms of activism, critical disability studies, and trans theory. So I'm just thinking about how you know, in the case of activism, critical disability studies, and trans theory, I, I think our the the more typical uh, entry into those those areas of inquiry is through a kind of ethical and political imperative, right? That our interventions are usually around, you know, whether it's you know in terms of like a more inclusive world, a different notion of belonging, an expansive sense of the human, you know, these ways that. That I think we enter, we sort of habitually enter as scholars into this discourse. 
you frame it in terms of curiosity. So again, like, you know, I'm interested in the archives of political ex- uh, of experience uh, f- uh, phrasing, but also what you think that different entryway or framing of questions of, of trans theory, critical disability studies and activism, like what is, how does curiosity change the way we enter those fields? Yeah, I think first, just to speak to why archives of political experience, you know, it's it's important to me to think about um, experiences of political resistance and experiences of disability or of transness as already having uh, theory in them rather than as places where we can draw resources for doing theory. And so I wanted to flag that um, there is... There is a, There are already stories here and theorizations here and histories here and therefore archives here mm-hmm. um, that aren't simply reducible to experience, which we think of as fleeting and as um, not written and not contained in some way and as not theoretical often enough. Um, but what I wanted to do in this particular section was really think about um, about curiosity in a resistant context so this is you know pulling from the first the first part of the book and saying okay i want to zero in less on the political you know power structures that define and constrain uh, mainstream ish ways of, of utilizing curiosity which one can do but i really want to i want to want to give space and time to to resistant curiosity and so there's a chapter on on political resistance movements and you know folks i think typically come to political resistance movements thinking that um, they bring answers, they bring assessments, solid yeah, assessments yeah. of this is what's wrong, this is what needs to change, this is what we're doing, this is what we're demanding. And all of that is true, but I think it's equally true that political resistance movements are incredibly curious and they ask questions like, well, what really is the problem? What are we really facing? What are we really dealing with here? What is the data we need to collect to prove it mm-hmm. um, in a strategic way to the right people in the right positions and places? And what do we really want to imagine? Like we can say this is, isn't is okay, but to describe what we want and what it looks like, that takes a whole different comportment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it takes a curious comportment, or so I argue. And then the other two chapters on, on uh, disability studies and <clears throat> trans studies, here I really wanted to think about communities and literatures um, that kind of characterize curiosity as only almost only neg- in a negative light. So mm-hmm. if, if you look at the term curiosity in disability studies and, and trend studies, you'll see over and over again, it's like, well, we, we are consistently the object of curiosity. We were made into curiosities. We are made into curios and we're yeah. tired of it, right? Yeah. Like just, just stop approaching us that way. And the literature is just really, really, really strong on that point. Um, but I wanted to flip it and say, Yes, and these communities are incredibly curious in their own right and are asking really innovative, um, really honest questions and breaking open areas of inquiry in an experiential way, in a scholastic way, in a creative way, um, in an aesthetic way, right? There's just so much happening here. And what are these implicit accounts of curiosity in the practices of these communities? Mm -hmm. Um, That's really what that, for me, that's what that opened up for me. And I want to wonder... You know, I leave that section wondering, what does it mean to trans a question or an, a field of inquiry? What does it mean um, to crip que- questions? What does it mean to ask, to kind of en- embrace and notice 
the the mad components of inquiry and investigation, not in a like geniuses are mad sort of way, but in a what is disordered thinking and how does it actually mm-hmm. contribute to um, the kind of thoughts we have to think right now? Yeah. So just lots more to do there. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, reading the book and especially now hearing you, you talk about, you know, politics and curiosity and so forth. You know, as you say, I think so many of the reasons why people, uh, why someone would join a particular political movement is I share those values and I want those ends and here's a group of people and we will work towards it. But there's also, I don't even know if it's the antechamber or in some ways, I think kind of the vital life of so much of our politics, you know, certainly the origins are, uh, but also the, the, the vitality of it is that moment of somebody asking a question you hadn't thought to ask. I mean, I, you know, not to make it about like my own personal narrative, but I think I'm just like everybody else. I remember hearing as an undergraduate, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, come talk about the poor and what it meant to throw your lot in with the poor. And he was talking about partly it was a Jesuit college and partly in a religious register, but also in this like deeply uh, moral register that resonated with me as a non-Catholic, but as a person who ostensibly cared about others and it just he was asking questions about like race and nation and history because he's talking about haiti and so like i reconnected to that moment of like you know i do think about aristide and gustavo gutierrez at my graduation right Mm -hmm. who was a graduation speaker kind of deflating the vanity of the day with uh, really difficult questions Mm -hmm. but the way i got you know that made me curious about because they were questions rather than here's a movement, come join us, get on our listserv, right? Um, And that, you know, when I think about my own sort of political interests or things that I might want to do, I do draw life from that. And that was like 1989. That's a long time, but it it casts this huge shadow. And I hear that in what you're saying and also in the book of like, it's a reminder because I do think the formulations and the plans and the values that we share is really um, so much of the discourse, if not entirely the discourse around activism. Yeah. I think, you know, it makes me think that possibility, I think the possibility for social change is always all around us in some sense, but um, that you have to have a kind of critical comportment, critically curious comportment to, to hear the questions when they're happening and to hang on to them and to, and to nurture them and to let them grow into something bigger. Um, But it is that, that crack, allowing that crack to happen, and then the crack mm-hmm. can can grow over time. Yeah, I like that. I like it, putting it in. I think putting it in terms of comportment is, is such a. And this is you know now that you know <laughs> sort of getting into you know canonical figures of of, of, of European philosophy. I mean, that's what I always loved about Merleau-Ponty and the mm-hmm. the phenomenology of perception. It's this everything sort of coming back to modes of comportment. Yeah. And so when you said that, I was like, yes, that the way we have to be prepared to to hear questions. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask, let me back up uh, maybe, um, or not back up, but broaden the lens here and ask about philosophy, right? Philosophy professors, my PhD, it's our, our shared, um, intellectual space in so many ways. Um, why do you think that curiosity hasn't been more of a part of philosophy and philosophical thinking. I mean, as you say, you're sort of pulling out these occasional mentions in order to construct a, an apparatus for it. 
So I'm in, interested in why you think it hasn't been a stronger theme in, in the history of philosophy, but also how you think philosophy, whether as a discipline or a sort of discursive space um, and just as a mode of thinking, how do you think it looks different or is practiced differently when we actually move curiosity to being one of the central concerns? Yeah, I think curiosity, one of the answers here is that wonder has had a greater amount of attention in the history of philosophy. And there's a long, there's a long battleground between wonder and curiosity um, mm -hmm. that um, I won't get into here. But I do think that curiosity is critical to the philosophical enterprise and has been from, from the beginning. But it's one of these things that is so close to the practice of philosophy that it just slips under our noses, I think. And there is, I mean, that's understandable in one way, but there's a lot of danger there, right? Anything that is so familiar that we don't pay attention to it um, typically carries in Trojan horses of things we don't actually want or need in, yeah. in philosophy. And so I think, I think, especially in this moment where I think we're really grappling with expanding what philosophy means and who does it and about what, I think that we need to be thinking critically about um, curiosity. And that means asking these fundamental questions that really drive the book, like who gets to ask philosophical questions? Yeah. And there we have to talk about pipelines and hiring and demographics or how those philosophical questions end up getting asked. And we need to really think about and talk about the what I understand is the ridiculously restrictive ways in which philosophical method gets characterized and policed. Mm -hmm. um, we need to talk about what are the philosophical questions that are guiding the field right now. And that leads us into, you know, what are the marginalized subfields? And, um, and especially around race and ethnicity, gender, sexuality, disability, but a lot else. Um, and that is a place where we as philosophers need to be, really need to be grappling with new questions, I think. And then to what end are we asking our philosophical questions? And there we have to talk about the social and political impacts of what we do and what we don't do. So there's a lot of philosophy that just doesn't, just washes its hands of whatever the implications or repercussions of what it's doing are. And I think, I think that cannot be done um, innocently. Yeah. And I think even just the assembly of your book is really interesting that way. Because, like I said, you know, when I was talking about, you know, the canonical figures sort of, you know, characterization in the tenure book, which uh, is, I'm going to be laughing about that for a while. It's just so real. <laughs> but um, that, like, orientation of, uh, you know, Derrida's theory of curiosity, mm. I think, you know, you mentioned wonder and, and um, wonder and curiosity, you know, it made me think. Uh, also about the relationship between wisdom and curiosity oh, yeah. in the sense that we often think of wisdom as attached to the sage and the great author. You know, certainly in the European philosophical tradition, which is training we share, so much of like, quote, important work, and it is important work, mm -hmm. is that like the great thinker and we do an exposition and critical analysis. Mm -hmm. But so much of that is so deeply parasitic on the text. Mm -hmm. And it's only parasitic because of a sort of presumption of a certain kind of wisdom. And the way you are able to work so freely with three really important and powerful thinkers, I mean, mm -hmm. Foucault, Derrida, and, and Nietzsche, I mean, they battle for big space. I mean, they're big, loud people right as mm -hmm. as writers but that the i think even just the composition of your book reflects what you're talking about in terms of you know it's not going to be the wonder of derrida and so you're going to 
to solve the puzzle or yeah. the sage, which you're just honored to sort of disassemble and reassemble, right. but some different kind of approach. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what, I think that's where we need to be these days. So let me ask you the same, maybe about politics. Um, you know, I think so much about the way we create a, almost like a taxonomy of, of, of politics is around, you know, are you a radical? Are you conservative? Are you a liberal? Or, you know, we have multiple terms and they proliferate the more the Facebook thread or whatever gets into right, 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 yeah. dressing down the original post or, you know, or, or just even real conversations about like, right. are you are you radical or are you a sort of, um, you know, reformist and these sorts of things. But I'm interested then how you see curiosity in relation, I just pick radicalism, mm -hmm. um, because I do think, you know, as, as you've already talked about, you know, really curiosity is in some sense by definition radical in that mm -hmm. it's an openness and comportment towards the, the, the question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you see uh, the relationship between curiosity and political radicalism? Are they sort of the same thing? Is curiosity kind of an antechamber? Are they sort of in parallel tracks? Or, you know, it's an open question, obviously, but that was a thing that I really found interesting about the book is trying to think about that those taxonomies and especially radicalism. Like, what is it in relation mm -hmm. to something like curiosity? Yeah, I think it's... I think it's true that curiosity has revolutionary potential, that it has liberatory potential, that it has radical potential. Um, and yet I do also think that all questions and all, all forms of questioning and all acts of curiosity or practices of curiosity have histories and have lineages. Mm. And that means that, um, that while there can be an openness to it, that openness can be an openness to how can I better... Um, move forward a direction of inquiry that you and I might say actually is really troubling, you know, so mm. that if we, if we, we think about, um, the actual questions that guide police data collection these days, or if we think huh. about the actual questions and inquiries and curiosities that guided colonial expansion, um, there are, these are forms of curiosity that I would say are not revolutionary and are not radical and are not liberatory, even if there's an, a particular openness to the new. But there's a characterization what, of what yeah. the new should be and what the new is gonna what the new is gonna support in mm -hmm. the old. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me, I think I think there are questions being asked on the left and on the right and in you know radical circles and in conservative circles and and the and the difference is in the questions themselves and in the lineages of those questions and then I think in the impact of those questions and so for me the what I hope for political theory in relationship to this text is that is that we we dig into more of what are those political formations of curiosity and the political formations of questions and their histories and lineages and and therefore then which ones are, are do we really find liberation in and how and why so we can become a little bit more conscientious about about what we're asking yeah you know, it's interesting because it also that that asking questions and curiosity is so much, I, I think, a part of at least the popular imagination. But I also think an analytical imagination of democracy, right, yeah. um, as a marketplace of ideas. Right, right. But the marketplace of ideas, as we know, 
can be insanely destructive. Yeah, um, yeah. While also being extremely liberatory, right? I think yeah. all of us who, who went to college and and emerged or graduate school or a club or a meeting of some kind and emerged different, right? We right. know that the disper- the, dis- the dispersion of ideas is transformative, right? but also that idea of a sort of open marketplace as a value end unto itself, as you were saying, that yeah. doesn't really ask the question of liberation. Yeah, it's not enough, right? So we have to we have to connect curiosity to other concerns, I think. Okay, yeah. And that's all that was my question sort of emerging out of the book is the relationship between, you know, maybe the way to put it is is curiosity and political values. Yeah. Is and that's why I asked about the antechambers, a sort of antechamber to political values, but we need to then also have a moment of adjudication of those political values yeah right to end around questions of liberation but also it seems like there's an antechamber like what makes you curious about liberation that truth is like a lot of people just don't give a shit about liberation that that's right. it's right. a terrifying thing to me but i mean i've been in classrooms and they're just like yeah. no we're good yeah I'm like we're not good right yeah yeah Yeah, and that's why, I mean, if there's a basic message of the book, it's that you can't think curiosity without politics and can't think politics without curiosity. And that the two are always forming each other and attending to to that mode of formation in each case. You know, what are the political values that push our curiosities and our questions and our inquiries? And what are the question, the the comportments of curiosity that can push our politics? That's that's that circle I want to stay with. Yeah. Well, let me ask you then also about your this the relationship of this book to um, to your other work. I mean, obviously, you have an edited collection on on curiosity, which I assume is sort of your, you know, I, I love that. I, I've I, I've tried to do that myself with uh, when I'm authoring a book, have an edited volume come out around similar time. Of course, the edited volume. I'm thinking my Glissant book uh, ended up. The edited volume took up so much time it delayed the book. <laughs> but I like I like that pairing, right? Because then it's like you know, let's let's expand beyond my book, like expand, mm-hmm. you know, make contribution, the continuity there. But also, you know, the, this enormous editing project with Intolerable, which was, by the way, the first podcast in this uh, podcast oh, yeah. series. You you and Kevin were the uh, first, and you know that's about something very different it's about prison informations group and um then you have the the curiosity edited collection and then you also of course have this co-authored book mm-hmm. right on curiosity mm-hmm. so i'm curious curious i'm interested <laughs> i want to be I want to over over uh, say the word um i'm interested in how you think of this book about curiosity and politics curiosity and power in relation to these other projects intolerable definitely about politics and power right and curious minds is a a book about curiosity and cognition and then the edited collection yeah i think uh the work on the prisons information group which is in intolerable and also active intolerance was this was really formative for me because um, it's a moment in French history when um, intellectuals at the time, uh, or what were called intellectuals, were really grappling with um, the fact that prison wasn't a question and in, in contemporary culture at the time, but that it was a question for prisoners themselves. Hmm. And so what does it mean to listen to the questions that prisoners themselves have about the justice system and about incarceration and, and about um, parole and about the death penalty and, and whatever else. Um, so I think it was already for staging for me the, um, the stakes 
of curiosity and power before I had actually gotten to it. So intolerable, of course, took a good a decade to work on. So I think I think my brain was in it um, before and after and alongside of the work on curiosity and power. And I think it um, it really changed for me uh, my what I was attending to, and especially the direction of thinking with a specific community who doesn't get um, doesn't get uh, to ask questions themselves typically but gets but gets objectified or fetishized or or kind of spectacularized in the way i mean if you think about all of the cop shows on um uh television or these days or all of the um it is wild how many cop shows there are yeah cop shows or (laughs) or or prison shows right they're like we'll go in and we'll see like the truth behind the whatever which isn't actually uh, giving the floor, which is what you know, intolerable is all about. Giving the floor to um, prisoners themselves because they know best what's happening there and what needs to change. So that was, I think, that was a formative for me in constructing curiosity and power. And then curious minds, which is the other monograph, the co-authored monograph, is really an outgrowth, I think, of curiosity and power. I was thinking about how curiosity gets practiced not in this individual discoverer sort of mode, um, but rather in a relational mode, right? And so curiosity, not as a colonial enterprise, but as a relational responsive community enterprise. What does that really look like? And um, so I ended up, you know, collaborating with uh, my twin to write this book to think about how does a relational account of curiosity change the neuroscience around curiosity? How does it expand the questions mm-hmm. there? Because neuroscience and psychology, they all really take curiosity to be this individual, you know, desire, capacity, or motivation, um, rather than the social practice. And then, so ask, how does it change the neuroscience of curiosity, but also how does it change implications for education? Those, mm-hmm. are, the, those are the two driving questions of curious minds. Um, but I do think they're rooted in curiosity and power. Yeah, I love that you co-authored a book with a with a sibling, a twin, is is a whole other level. Um, yeah, uh, hope, um, um, hope. I assume that the relationship survived co-authorship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's still really strong, which I'm grateful for. I know it was risky, <laughs> but but yeah, and we're we're talking about other books, so we'll see. I I mean I that's. Uh, you know, I co-authored an introduction to an edited collection I did with my partner, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, maybe needed to go our separate ways for a weekend. Yeah, the, you know, the partner, yeah, the partner's too risky, definitely for me. <laughs> um, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I know Marissa's probably not listening to this, but um, it, it was a lot. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let me, um, you know, when people read the book, I want to ask you about how you imagine the impact of the book on on readers and. As you know, when somebody reads a book, they come to it. I mean, it's a basic hermeneutic event. They come to it with with their own interests and ideas, and therefore they encounter it and walk away with it uh, uh, in their own, in some ways on their own terms. But we also write books with the idea that the reader is going to be impacted in their terms of their sensibilities in certain ways. And I want to ask you how you imagine or would like readers to walk away from this book because I do think that this book and has come out clearly in this conversation is so much about impacting our sensibilities and the way, the way we are open to and closed off to the world. Right. And it's an intervention in that. So I'm curious to hear you talk about how you want, imagine, desire readers to walk away, right. To be different after this book. 
Yeah, I think really fundamentally, I just want people, I want people to be disabused of the notion that their curiosities are just their individual interests um, that have really mm -hmm. no, um, that need not have any social accountability. I think that I just want to disabuse folks of that notion and to say, and to invite them to think critically about their own curiosity and about the curiosity that they see around them. So what are the questions that mobilize their workplace or that mobilize our classrooms or that mobilize, I don't know, whatever our provosts want us to be asking or, or the, you know, the questions <laughs> that, that guide um, funding for, for different fields, right? There are particular questions that are being uh, lifted up as these are the things that you, you can get funding for and these aren't. And I don't know, there's just, um, or in, even in our homes, right? What are we... What are we asking ourselves or asking of ourselves or where, how much, how do we spend our time surfing through whatever it is that we're surfing through? That's, that stuff is not just innocent. It's not just individual. It didn't just start in the particular location of our individual bodies. Um, all of these questions have histories. They have histories, so they have pasts and they have futures, right? As we mm -hmm. ask these questions, we perpetuate something and we push something forward. And the question is, are we perpetuating pushing forward and pushing forward the, the inquiries we want to get behind? Like, let's, let's, get, let's get a little bit um, reflective about our curiosity. Yeah, no, I love that. What about you? Just sort of in some ways... Um, just you know turn that same question to you you know when we we have an idea when we write a book about what the book is about and then we finish it and it's you know has either continuity or usually elements of discontinuity with the original vision because writing a book like changes us right the the, the typing of words i remember uh, professor dombrowski who my last name is Drabinsky. Everybody in college thought it was my dad. Anyway, <laughs> but I remember a professor of mine in college, Dombrowski, saying, like, if you haven't written it, you really don't know it. Mm. Right. And when you write it, you'll learn more about it. And I, I always took that to heart. Right. Because, you know, it was my experience writing, but also because, you know, as when I write books, I find like the book changes me. And in a weird way, it changes me in the way that I often hope it changes a reader. So in sort of in that vein, like how did this book change you, right? Where does it change? How does it change and impact and transform your sensibilities? And so just as I asked about the reader, how do you walk away differently from this book? Which is, by the way, also if you want to talk about future projects. But I always say I don't want to be like, what's next? Because you have the right to bask in the glory of the book for a few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, this book was really this book was transformative for me. And I think that, um, I think I developed a kind of, uh, poetic sensibility in the book. I gave myself greater license in the writing of it. Um, especially in the beginning and end, the intro and conclusion. Um, and I think I'm, I became, now I can't not, uh, you know, kind of, uh, explore more the kind of poetic, poetic philosophical thinking. So poetry and poetics, um, also story, the importance of story. So the more I wrote it and the more I rewrote it, the more I said, you know, it's really the stories in this book that I think do much of the work to show and to tell and to bring in um, and to build some kind of rapport and community with the, with the readers. So the stories. And then lastly, I think I just felt after finishing this book, I felt um, 
far more rebellious about philosophical method than I already had um, it, when I started writing it. Because I, I love that. Yeah, just <laughs> because I, because I realized, you know, that these that is precisely what has happened is this kind of kind of political exercise of constraining what philosophy can be. And I thought, you know, I can't I can no longer I didn't get behind that before and I really can't get behind it now. Um, and so I just want to think what is actually useful in pursuing whatever the philosophical question is. So in the next project, which I just finished the first draft of um, last month, it's called uh, How We Make Each Other, Transpoetics in the University. And it, it's, it's trying to think about trans life in, in university settings um, as not a story about policy, but rather a story about poetics. And I'm relying on Fred Moten there specifically. So what, what, are, what are the undercommons modes of making one another and making meaning in university settings? But for me, the, the, the poetic writing and poetic sensibilities, the uh, story-led theory are really central to that book. And, mm. then, and then I've incorporated kind of oral histories and ethnography and archival work, which I, none of which I had done before in the previous books. Um, but I just thought, that's what I need to do. I need to actually talk to people who are trans in these universities. And I need to, you know, read up on the archives. And I need to um, do some ethnographic field notes. And, and that's, what this, that's what this project takes. So I'm excited about it. I, you know, I had seen, of course, on, uh, that you were working on this project. I didn't know it was so far advanced. That's fantastic. Yeah, so yeah. When you get the page proof, send them to me, and then we'll do another podcast. <laughs> okay, uh, sounds great. That's totally. Uh, that's uh, congratulations, by the way. Getting a draft done is like it's uh, a big like, deal. You're know, like galaxy shifting in, in the very <laughs> local galaxies. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I cannot tell you how much I love that idea of, you know, I can no, you know, I can no longer even begin to think about gatekeeping, constricting, yeah. being constrained by a philosophical method. I, I just think yeah. that is that's the healthiest thing for I don't even want to say our profession, but for yeah. those of us who think for a living and yeah. write for a living. And um, I think your book makes it really hard to, to go backwards from that. And for me, if I, if you were to ask me, you know, what do you, what do I think is a big contribution of the book? I would say, you know, what, now that you say it, I will, I will use that vocabulary, but what it does to the very idea of practicing a philosophical method is exactly the thing to push everybody in philosophy out into area studies, out into social science, yeah. out into, um, you know, uh, speaking in our own voices listening to the people around us and yeah. that's a huge i mean philosophy is it is one of the most uptight disciplines you'll ever <laughs> find right yeah. and so whatever yeah. uh whatever sort of kicks the kicks at the uptightness i i love and the way this is a systematic it's not kicking at yeah it's actually just saying like we're harming ourselves as thinkers when when we aren't when we don't have a curious comportment yeah absolutely well, I love this book, uh, and I'm so glad we found time to talk about it in my office, which is great. Yeah, I love um, your office. <laughs> you were the you were on the first podcast in the series. Now the first podcast done in person. So right. uh, you know, I don't know what the next first will be. Uh, <laughs> maybe if the book is uh, in page proofs by the time we get our 100th, you can be the 100th or something like that. All right, all right. <laughs> this is Sounds number 63. Good. But uh, thank you so much for making time. I really love this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it, John. All right, take care. Yep.